Welcome back to the Look and Sound of Leadership, an ongoing series of executive coaching tips designed to help you be perceived in the workplace the way you want to be perceived. I'm Tom Henschel, your executive coach, and today we're talking about leading with political savvy, part two. Hui Min was tired of losing. As an art director in animation, she was constantly competing for scarce resources. She saw other people get what they needed when she didn't. Our conversation took place in the earliest days of her contract to build an art department at a growing studio. She didn't want to lose again. She hated the idea of having to play politics, but if that's what it took to stop losing, she would do it. During our conversation about politics in Part 1, I had asked, Hui Min, what exactly does playing politics mean to you? She answered, it means doing whatever you have to do to win. I've said it to some of the women I mentor. To me, politics looks like a street fight in an alley at midnight. Bad things happen in politics. People get hurt in politics. As we talked on, I told her my view of politics was much brighter, because to me, the only reason to play politics was to act on behalf of your career. It's not evil or nefarious. It's not manipulative or self-serving. Playing politics is acting on behalf of your future self. In my definition, politics are by default positive and empowering. She protested, But not everyone plays that way, Tom. How do I win when it's like sitting down against someone who manipulates cards? There's no way I'm going to outplay him. I'm a sitting duck when I'm working with someone who'd just as soon slit my tires as be a team player. Whoa, I said, that's scary. Are you being metaphoric? Not by much. A lot of people I work with would agree. In animation, there are some cutthroat cultures. And that's the second half of politics, right? Culture. I had told Hui Min I thought politics had two halves, relationships and culture. We had talked about the relationships half. This was our conversation about culture. Right, I agreed. If you're working with teammates who would slit your tires, something is happening in that culture that allows those behaviors. I mean, I don't know how it shows up. It could be how rules are followed, or it could be how people earn preferential treatment. It could be what gets rewarded. It could be a million things. But those behaviors don't thrive in every culture. You know where they wouldn't survive? Huimin asked, smiling. My friend's studio. She used to say all she wanted was a workplace where people were kind to each other and liked to work. And she could never find it. So she started her own studio. And she actually got a film funded. And people like working with her. So she did it. She created a culture. Would you ever work for her? I asked. Are you kidding? We talk about it all the time. It'll happen. But in the meantime, I've got to figure out this new place. I said, I have a chart that might interest you. The chart shows when people's political styles are a good fit with a culture and when they're not. There are four political styles. and The idea is that everyone falls into one of these four styles. Then it overlays four company cultures. The idea here is that every company culture is going to fall into one of these four. And it shows the different fits. It might interest you. She said, I'd hate to think where I'd be on that chart. Why, I asked. Because I feel like a loser. You know, you and I agreed. Good work doesn't speak for itself. But 
I feel myself wanting someone to just notice everything I do and say, holy crap, you kick ass and give me more to do. The chart has a style just like that, I said. It has a name. It's called The Purist. Purists act on behalf of their careers by doing good work, just like you. They're one end of the spectrum of styles. A lot of people are purists. You're not alone. She said, you may not have meant this, but I hear that title purist, and I think loser again. Because, I asked. Because look what we're up against. Well, wait, you tell me, if my style on my end is purist, what's on the other end? I said, they're called maneuverers. She barked a laugh. <laughs> See? That's who we're up against. It's no wonder we lose. Who are these maneuverers, anyway? Maneuverers? They're really skilled political players. They're behind-the-scenes players. They like deniability. So a lot of times, people don't see what the maneuverers are doing. She said, there was a guy like that a couple years ago before COVID. Man, that guy had me thinking he was all on the up-and-up. And then I found out he'd been undermining me for months. I felt so stupid. See? There I go again, losing. I said, ooh, we min, that sounds lousy, I'm sorry. But I'm not surprised. If it's a culture where maneuverers thrive, purists could have a tough time of it. I understand that you would feel badly. She said, do you know what I did once? Huh? I tried to create a healthy culture on one of my teams. We were working at this company that was run by two brothers who were totally looney tunes. Everyone was finger pointing. Everyone was angry all the time. I tried to shelter my team from it. I tried to create a culture where we could trust each other, but I couldn't. There was too much maneuvering everywhere. We got sucked into all kinds of craziness, but I tried. I nodded sympathetically. That sounds so hard. She said, I felt kind of naive, thinking I could make my own little culture in the midst of all that nastiness. Still nodding, I said, company culture starts way above the team leaders. It's cause and effect. You flip a switch, a light comes on, you install a leader, culture happens. We don't know what kind of culture it's going to be, but culture will happen. She asked, would a place like that be on that chart of yours? The Crazy Brothers place? Oh, yeah, I said. It's one extreme of the four cultures. It's called pathological. The word surprised and delighted her. She laughed. So much for politics being positive and empowering. I laughed too, right? No, there really are pathological cultures for sure, and they most definitely are not positive or empowering. What I meant was that my personal framework on politics, when I'm acting on behalf of my career... I choose to always be positive and empowering. It's my choice about me. She asked, what's on the other end from pathological? Minimal, I said. What's being measured is how politicized is a company's culture. Is it minimally politicized, team-oriented, happy? Or is it pathologically politicized, rules getting broken, people being angry? She asked, my friend's studio would be minimally politicized, wouldn't it? From what you've said, I'd think so, yeah, I said. Funny, when I think about working with her, it feels completely different. Like, I wouldn't have to be on my guard all the time. Her culture would be such a good fit for me. Yeah, I said, a purist in a minimal culture? Sounds like a great fit. She said, but it doesn't really matter. You know, I can't choose where I work based on which company's culture I deem worthy to receive my services. 
I have to work for a living. If I'm in a bad fit, I just have to suck it up and keep on losing. Or learn new skills, I said. She said, no, I'm sorry, I don't want to be a maneuverer. Well, I would never suggest that, I said. What I might suggest is that you acquire skills that'll help you the next time you find yourself in a politicized culture. The chart I've been talking about is from a book called The Secret Handshake. This book is like a user's manual about political savvy. I think you could learn some of the skills in that book and still feel good about yourself. Maybe, she said. I'm not so sure I like this chart. Why not, I asked. Well, it's like you said. I'm a purist who likes minimal politics. The chart's just going to confirm that I'm losing because I'm too nice. Guimin, the chart isn't measuring strength or predicting winners. It's just asking you to consider two questions. First, what's your style? How politically active are you or politically inhibited? Second, what's the culture you're working in? Is it minimally politicized, highly politicized? You wouldn't need this chart to know you're in a good fit at your friend's studio. But at this new place, it might help you think, you know, what skills do I need to succeed here? What's going to best serve my career? Hui Min discovered that this new animation house was moderately politicized. Not a perfect fit, but tolerable for a short-term contract. Convinced that political skills would help her career, she used her coaching to work on a style of leadership she read about in The Secret Handshake. The style was called inspirational. It was exciting to watch her build her version of the look and sound of leadership. This episode and the previous episode have been about playing politics, and what I'm proposing is that you will play more savvy politics if you pay attention to two political factors, relationships and culture. Last month's episode explored relationships. This month's explores culture. So I have three ideas about culture and then a story about culture in Hollywood. Here's idea number one. Let's talk about culture. What is it? How are we defining it? A word that helps me think about culture is the word tribe. Culture is what you need to do to stay in the tribe. You know, if you want to be in the tribe, you have to share the tribe's values and the tribe's norms. That's how you play politics in a tribe. You join in. And if you can't, there's going to be friction on all sides. The tribe has its rules for belonging. Culture is what you need to do to stay in the tribe. And don't forget, tribes have no restriction on size. Tribe could be an entire workforce of a global enterprise. But there are rules for inclusion, and those rules are the culture. That's number one. How are we defining culture? It's about the rules for belonging. Second idea. The second idea begins with you standing in a river. It's a river of norms, a river of practices. It's a river of culture, and it's carrying you along. And you're having an experience as you get carried on this river of culture. And the experience you're having stirs your feelings of self-worth. The river might make you feel inadequate. The river might make you feel strong. However it goes, Culture creates feelings, feelings about yourself. Think about all the feelings in Hui Min's stories. She, she said she felt stupid. She said she felt naive. She felt like a loser. And then she thought of her friend's studio, and she felt 
like warm puppies. All those feelings got stirred up by the cultures she was in. And that's the second idea. Culture creates feelings, and those feelings are about self-worth. We have them, and so do others. Read the room and use your feelings to your advantage. This third idea begins with you back in the river being carried along, but what's the river? It's norms, it's practices, it's culture. It's not your river. The source waters are somewhere above you. People upstream are sending these culture waters down on you, and you are in the river. Also in the river with you are your peers, right? And perhaps you help each other in the river, or perhaps you compete in the river. The river will decide how you interact because the river is culture. Also in this river are the people who report to you. So whether you have one direct report, whether you have a whole division under you, all those people are being carried along just like you except for one thing. All of them are downstream of you. They are in the river, and they are experiencing the culture that flows from you. They have feelings about the culture they're in that are just as strong as you have about yours. This third idea says you are creating culture. People have feelings about you. Be intentional. I want to end with a story about Hollywood and stars and culture and I am not sure if this story is inspiring or depressing. You can decide right after this month's gratitude. I'm grateful to continue a tradition that I've been doing for years. Here in the United States, we just finished our National Day of Giving Thanks. And every year at this time, I take a minute to say thank you on the air to the team that gets the look and sound of leadership on the air every month. My loyal, insightful, funny editors, Nancy Brewer, Graham Burns, Tom Mannheim, Nancy Shanfeld, thank you. Our ever-dependable VA, Laura Clark, thank you. Paul Eisen of Eisen Design. Paul is so much more than a designer. Paul, thank you for everything you bring. And the man who manages the internet, George Avellino, thank you for making it easy for me, and thank you for making it easy for all the users. Thank you. To all of you, the show would not be happening without you. Thank you. By the way, You know, that political style chart that I talked about, that's a real thing. It's a free download. The link's in the show notes. When you get it, you're looking at the work of George and Paul, who I just thanked. George and Paul create all the assets from the monthly email to the online transcripts. By the way, did you know that you can download a PDF of each episode, the transcript? Not not of this part of the show, but of the story part of the show. When you get it, thank George, thank Paul. I've said more than once that all of these resources that we create and we put up and make available for you is just my way of saying thank you to all of you. I am so grateful to all of you. Your support is so meaningful to me, and it's very touching. Thank you for the messages you send me. Thank you for trusting me to be your coach. And thank you for the reviews you write. (laughs) This month, Todd Thompson, the spotlight's all yours, my man. Thank you so much for your continued support. To everyone who wrote a review this year, Thank you. And to everyone who's going to write a review in 2024, thank you. Okay, a Hollywood story about culture. I first landed as an actor in Hollywood in my early 20s. I was a recent Juilliard graduate, and it so happened in a wonderful piece of good fortune that I became friends 
with Richard Thomas. Richard was an actor, he was my age, and he was internationally beloved as John Boy on The Waltons. When I met Richard, The Waltons was at the top of the television ratings. Richard talked about the responsibility he felt as the star of a network television show. They had a weekly audience of about 18 million people, which in those days put them in the top five. He took that audience very seriously, but even more, he felt responsible for the culture of the production. It takes hundreds of people to make a television show, and he wanted every one of them to have a good experience. He believed it was his job, this 20-something-year-old kid, he believed it was his job to make the set a happy place to work. And it was a happy place to work. I would visit the set all the time, and on the Waltons, the actors were having fun. There was a lot of laughter, it was very loose, and at the same time, they were super efficient. You know, time is money on a television set. Wasting time is the cardinal sin. But these people, everyone, including the crew, they were enjoying themselves and they were wickedly efficient. The sense of people enjoying themselves, it extended to the writers, to the producers. The word got around Hollywood. The working culture on the Waltons was a really nice one. Could Richard take all the credit? No, but I have no doubt that he played a big part in that. He created culture. Here's the flip side of a star creating culture. About, I don't know, 10 years later, I got hired to be a guest star on one episode of a show that was in its second season, and it starred a woman who was widely known for being petulant and mean. Leading up to it, I felt kind of resigned. You know, I figured, hey, I was just one more guest star. They have them every week. Even if she took a disliking to me, it was going to be over soon enough. I went into it feeling like the stakes were really low. So on my first morning, I'm in the makeup chair. The artist who's working on me wishes me good luck. And I go, what? Good luck? Why? And she says, you know, with kind of speaking out loud, not like it's a secret, she goes, well, you never know which version of her is going to show up. You know, the happy girl or the wacky girl. And when she's wacky, we all duck. We all tiptoe around every day because no one wants to be the person who sets her off. And I saw it. Even going from my trailer, walking to the set, everyone was really quiet. I, there are a lot of people on a television crew, and normally, until the camera rolls, it's constant chatter. People are talking, not on this set. People weren't looking at each other. The tones were really hushed. It was a culture of fear. So then, you know, I, I have to meet this woman. I go up, I introduce myself, and she's pleasant enough. You know, she's fine. And during rehearsal, she seemed to be just going through the paces. But it's a television show, and that's fine. And then all of a sudden, something caught her ear, and she, in a finger snap, became enraged. She is cursing. She's saying, no one ever listens to her. And she storms off the set and into her trailer. And the crew did not seem particularly surprised. And I watched this little process begin about who had to call who and what had to happen. Clearly, clearly this had happened before. <laughs> you remember I said, you know, wasting time is the cardinal sin? It was 90 minutes before she came back to the set. 90 minutes. You know, it's like taking this giant fire hose of money and just shooting all that money into a sewer. 
I remember while I was waiting, feeling completely powerless, right? I remember having two thoughts, and one was that someone somewhere was allowing this hijack to happen. Someone somewhere had made the choice not to fire her. And that person, I thought, that person is as responsible for this culture of fear as she is. And I remember thinking about Richard. I remembered him saying, the star sets the tone. And look, Richard created a culture that was inspiring. That woman created a culture of fear. They were the stars, and the culture flowed from them as it does from you. I've said before on the show, leaders are like celebrities. People repeat what you say like you're a star. That's the whole point of this story. You are the leader. People are downstream from you. I hope you will keep them in mind. I hope you will become politically savvy. The Secret Handshake is a great tool. If you're ready to dive deeper, the link's in the show notes. You can dive deeper in our library. This episode is tagged in three categories. For women, perception, how you perceive others relationship building, and five specific episodes you might listen to that are not necessarily intuitive, boundaries, how to grow your self-management, I hate politics, that one's pretty obvious, the mindful executive, and your goodwill bank account. Okay, that's it for me. I look forward to being with all of you in 2024. Happy New Year to you all. Until next time, I'm Tom Henschel. Thanks so much for listening.